If your Bibles, go ahead. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to John 17. John 17. This passage was something that kind of flowed out of the men's advance as Bob led us through the upper room discourse. And as he and the group spent time looking at those different final sermons that John spent so much time on, I walked away feeling how much I have not appreciated this prayer of Christ. In John 17, we have the longest recorded prayer that Jesus gives us. And there's something remarkable about that. Why would all the New Testament writers let this be the longest? What is Jesus wanting us to see and understand this moment in his life? And there's something as we begin to look at this prayer for the next three sessions over this day and a half. It feels it can speak to anywhere we are in life. I don't know about you, but sometimes more often than not, life feels like I'm just juggling and just trying not to let anything break and fall. Um, sometimes it feels like a tightrope, just trying not to fall one side to the other. It feels like a lot of life is there are many ways to fail and one way to succeed. Does anyone else relate with that? <laughs> but it, it just kind of this passage kind of felt like this analogy, especially outside of the personal skill of a tightrope walker. What is the most important thing for that tightrope walker? Oh, Christ. Well, yes, and we hope the tightrope walker knows Christ, because if they fall to their death, we hope they know where they're going. Yes. It's life insurance. Life insurance. Sure, sure. That's good. I'm sure the, I'm sure the wife and kids appreciate life insurance. And not to look down. Uh, how about the rope? That, that rope is rightly tied. Not just that it wouldn't go loose, but it wouldn't go slack. The equilibrium necessary to walk. I almost, this was the one time I almost wanted to do a prop. I've never done props for teaching. Then I thought, we're going to have insurance problems. We can't do that. So. Um, but I just want just to feel that analogy for a minute that it's not just one side. Both sides had to be perfectly tied to the right tension for that tightrope walker to successfully walk, right? Something about this prayer feels like it adjusts both ends of our life as we need it for today. In this prayer, Jesus is going to let us understand what was planned before when no one existed outside of God. And then Jesus is going to show us where we're going. And both of these rods, if they are planted rightly in our lives, gives us comfort and strength for today. That's what I believe Jesus is blessing us with as he lets us peer into his private prayer life between him and his father. This is not just for today's session, but definitely overall, as we hold life in right tension. This isn't really the main point. We hold life in right tension, knowing God's plan from the past and eternity, and knowing where God will bring us to certainly in the future. We will know his love today. What God has planned in redemption and how God will be glorified gives clarity for the love we need today. And really what I hope is the biggest goal for our time, I just want us to be washed in the love of Christ. It is hard not to look at this passage and also think of Mary and Martha. How many of us relate to that? We are all Marthas. Busy, busy, busy. And if we sit, we feel like we're neglecting our duty. And yet it was Mary that was called beautiful for what she was doing. 
She chose the right thing and it wouldn't be taken from her. And the right thing, I believe, for our time in this retreat is to savor and cherish this prayer. So, let's look at the first ten verses that we'll be looking at tonight. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. The most common outline that commentators will break this whole chapter down by is the first few verses is Jesus praying for himself. The next section, Jesus prays for the disciples, and it closes with Jesus praying for the church. But as I was studying this chapter, it felt like three words just leaped off the pages. Three words that seem to show these themes of what Jesus is moving us to savor in the glory of this moment as we see the Father and Son discuss the plan of salvation. You see the word given in verses 1 through 10. You see the word kept in verses 11 through 19. And you see the word in in verses 20 through 26. For tonight, we're going to focus on that word given. Because as Christ opens our eyes to see what God is doing, God is giving us to himself and giving himself to us. Look again at verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Here he's going to move us to not just see the hour, the moment. He's going to see all that eternity has prepared for this exact moment. And for the last three chapters, starting in John 13, he has been preparing his disciples for this very hour, this moment where they're not going to have them anymore. He's warned them that they're going to be sorrowful, but they'll understand. And it's better for him to go because the spirit's going to come. And that this, this moment has been preordained by God. So the response after his lengthy teaching is prayer. And I don't believe John wastes words. So here the way he describes Jesus in this moment. When Jesus had spoken these words, speaking of all that he had just taught in chapters 13 through 16. Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven. He lifted up his eyes. And I believe John is wanting us to look with Jesus where he's looking. 
to pause in our life, to pause the questions and struggles and joys of our heart and to look with Jesus where our eyes truly belong. And we are going to see truths eternally enjoyed by the Father and Son and glimpse their constant, intimate communion. And it's not just to be wowed, it is to receive. This is the fulfillment of what he said at the beginning of his gospel in John chapter 1. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. What is that grace? It's God himself. How can such a gift be accomplished? It was accomplished by the hour. The first point we're going to look at is verses 1 through 3. That this moment, his life's moment was preordained for our eternal life. And it begins with this Hour, the pinnacle of the plan. The hour is mentioned multiple times. In fact, it's mentioned nine times in the Gospel of John. It's as if the apostle is wanting us to keep leaning forward and looking forward to this very moment. Six of the times of him saying the hour has not come. The hour has not come. And here we are at the last of the few where Jesus says the hour has come. And if we were just to compare it to how all the other New Testament writers understood what this moment meant... In the book of Acts, it is narrated that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts chapter 4, all the people that gathered against Jesus, Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, Israel, they did so, Acts 4 verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This was not an accident or A consequence, this was preordained. The hour has come. To where Paul even writes in 1 Corinthians 2, we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The plan of salvation was hidden, but wise. It was certain but not understood, and the hour has come. And what is Jesus' response right here at the cusp of the cross? Look at verse 1 again. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus' one desire of this moment is not the praise and acknowledgement he'll receive for the millennia and eternity to come. It is the one desire that the Father might be glorified. Exalt your Son. Why? That the Son may glorify you. How is this glory to come? It continues. Look at verse 2. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Jesus is referring to the plan of salvation that they had put together in eternity past. It was mutually decided. The son was not put under compulsion by the father, but this is the father's design and the son's desire. And the mutual glory to come came through what? The authority, verse 2, to give eternal life. In God's infinite wisdom of how he can be worthily exalted, what did God decide would give him maximum pleasure? To give eternal life to the dead. To give grace to rebels. To reconcile sinners. And that meant this hour. 
And there is no question what that hour meant. It was the cross. In God's design of what would give him the fullness of pleasure, it meant the sacrifice of his son. John chapter 12 Jesus says, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then John narrates, a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I'll glorify it again. And all the people thought it was thunder. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Here Jesus knew where he was coming and now he is finally here. Note the fact that even though this was a preordained, appointed hour, Jesus still prays. That God's sovereignty and the certainty of what's to happen doesn't nullify prayer. It empowers it. It makes sure that we don't miss where we need to be and how we are to be faithful. That we would be the sovereign means to God's sovereign purposes. And for Jesus, he aligns himself leading us by example and teaching us of these eternal truths that from eternity past, what was God's plan? Verse two, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And there's that word. This gifting of people to God and God to people. But what is this eternal life? Here is the gift And he gives us the clearest definition in verse three of all scripture. And this is eternal life. They know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I want us to appreciate that when we hear eternal life, rightly, we do think about how death is undone. And the ruin of sin is healed and we are forgiven And we have peace and joy. But the essence of what the gospel gives is knowledge. Knowledge, not an information, but that we would know the face of our God again. The face that we couldn't look at because of the shame of our sin. The presence we had to flee in the garden and find whatever was around us to hide the shame of our sin. And now we can know him again. Without shame. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. The gospel regenerates our dead souls, but it restores our lives. It reconciles us to what we were made for to be with God. Eternal life is knowing who God is. It is a matter of truth that we now understand we are not gods and there are no other gods but this one. But it is knowing God in relation that we are one again with him, intimately knowing him without the shame of sin. And Jesus even clarifies and shows his divinity that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I love how Jesus speaks in the third person. This is Jesus. And he's saying, I want them to know Jesus Christ. He wants people to know who he is because that's the greatest gift he could give. And this is who dispenses that gift. The authority was given to the Son, to all whom the Father gives the Son. 
Hear the way that the certainty of salvation is being blessed upon sinners. It gives power to what Jesus already said in John chapter 10. Hear these words afresh. John 10 verse 28 and 29. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of your father's out of the father's hand. Here, this is what MacArthur says. If you took two hands and you had the fathers and the sons holding you, that's how strong a grip God has on your heart. And when he says no one can snatch it, he means no one. Not even yourself. Our sin can never exceed his grace. This is the moment all eternity looked to. His life's moment, his life's hour that we might have eternal life. That's point number one. Point number two. This speaks now to the work, the mission. How is this eternal life to be given? What's the focus? It's his given work for his gifted people. Look at verse four with me. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Note how he defines and summarizes his whole mission of life. This is the work. To glorify you on earth. More than Jesus giving us the moral example that we need, more than Jesus giving the sacrifice for our sins, more than the revelation of truth to all the lies we have spun our lives with. His mission was to glorify his father. Is it any wonder that when the disciples come to him by the well of Samaria and try to offer him food in John chapter four, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. That my very sustenance that gives me strength and joy and delight of life, the regular longing I have exceeds any food of this world. It is that the Father might be glorified. That's my work. And it's the work you gave me to do. Look at verse 4. I glorified you with having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. It was a specific work, a planned work. And here already, it's accomplished. Jesus hasn't died yet. Jesus hasn't been whipped and bled and marred to where, as Isaiah foresaw it, nobody would recognize him. The chastisement for our peace hasn't happened yet. How can Jesus say it was accomplished? I think first that it puts us back to realize that what Jesus has come to do wasn't just to die, but to live a sinless life that we could never live. It was to teach us truth that we might understand the light of the world in our darkness. It was the giving of love in his personal presence and his touch through healing of lives and giving of himself to specific people. But when it came to the full picture of life, death and resurrection, Jesus is praying with eternity's eyes saying it's accomplished. In fact, this is why I believe John in Revelation twice says the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. That's the book of life. It is the book of life of the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. When it was planned in God's sovereignty, it was already done. 
It was already accomplished in the sense that there was nothing to change that plan. We hear in Jesus' prayers, not my will but yours be done. Is there any other way? There isn't. Jesus shows us how he answers his own prayer he teaches us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That what God has so sovereignly designed in his goodness and wisdom, that's our one desire and may it be accomplished. And so Jesus is already praying for that day and praying to our encouragement that what the disciples were about to see that would like the, look like the ultimate defeat was the actual victory. And so he prays in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Let the disciples see, let all the world see, it was not a failure. It was the gift. The work was the gift, and he did not fall short. And Jesus' worthy reward is to be given the glory he put aside for us. In Philippians 2, he emptied himself, how? By taking on the form of a servant. This is the glory Jesus longed for. And it was by a path of his own spilled blood. There is the glory of God. And what a picture that begins to heighten the challenge of John chapter 12 when there were many authorities who began to believe in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. Why? John 12, verse 43, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This wasn't just God's praise. What is the glory of God? It was that hour. It was that work. It was that man. It was God's son on the cross. And so is our path. This is the backdrop to now what he begins to pray in verse 6. This given work is clarified for us personally. Who are his people? Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They've kept your word. Hear the ownership of the Lord. They're mine. I've taken them. You've given them. And what has he shown that people? My name. My name. This wasn't just what would be filled on a name tag. But a person's name is all that they are. All that a person can trust and rely upon. The worth of that person. What has Jesus manifested? I have manifested your name. What has he manifested? First, he has shown us who God is and God is the father. God is not just an impersonal creator. He is the intimate father who is love eternally. God's name in relation to Jesus is that he is father. Hence, John chapter one, verse 14. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God's name is that he is father, son and Holy Spirit. God's name also speaks to the relationship of all that he is. When the glory of God is unveiled from Moses' eyes, he wasn't just smitten with light and awe 
It says, the Lord passed by and proclaimed his name. And what was his name? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The name of God is all of who he is. And that is what Jesus has manifested bodily when the word became flesh. And that doesn't just stop there. It's God's name in relation to his son, to his character, and to us. Because who did God choose to be? You see it in the Old Testament. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of you. The name of God includes our name. Hear it again. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me. The way God's name is manifested and magnified is by the people he chooses to claim. I love how throughout this text and throughout the rest of this chapter, he always speaks of them as already his. God already chose and claimed before any of us were born. It wasn't because of our merits our abilities, our efforts, but purely by his grace, he chose us. That's why John begins his gospel with this. Don't miss this. John chapter one, verses 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Hence in Ephesians chapter one, he says, blessed is the Father who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even what? What is the height of his blessing? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Often the word election seems to stir controversy or fear, the fear of being left out. But when the Bible speaks of election, it is our greatest comfort and hope that we have been found, not that we will be lost. God's claiming preceded our faith, but don't miss the faith. Look again at verse six, and they have kept your word. There is a receiving. Election is the ability to have faith. It is the strength to our faith. It is faith's foundation. Faith is the fruit of God's sovereign love. Faith responds to grace. It's how we're saved. How an election is accomplished is through our response of love for that amazing love. And hear that personalness, not the impersonalness. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they kept your word. Verse 7, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. All that Jesus was trying to show was, I'm from the Father. All that I have given you and gifted is from him, your creator, your Lord, your king. I have been sent by him. This is a specific work of the Holy Spirit highlighted in John 16 that he shows what has been enjoyed by the father and son. He opens our eyes to know what has been hidden and now is gifted. And here the way faith is extolled from this grace and love. Verse 8 For I have given them the words that you gave me. Faith is in the words given and the words received. Verse 8. They have received them and come to know in truth. Faith is truth known. 
that I came from you. Faith is Jesus being made known, God's son. And verse eight finishes, and they have believed that you sent me, that the father is known. We know both the gift and the giver. And I love how even in Jesus' prayer, he adds this little note, have come to know in truth. That implied in that statement is each of our stories and journeys. How we have come to know in truth. All of us receive grace and respond in faith in a unique way that is to the utmost praise of God. Every testimony of faith is a craftsmanship of God's sovereign plans before you even existed. This is his given work for his gifted people. This given to be given. And now look at how he begins to wrap up what I would consider this first section of verses 9 and 10. This is point three. Jesus' prayer for us and Jesus' answer is us. Look at verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. And they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Who does Jesus pray for? He says he doesn't pray for the world. That's hard to reconcile because in John 3, 16, we all know for God so loved the world. So why wouldn't he be praying for the world? It's helpful to take a step back and realize that even within John, we see two kinds of God's love. We see God's desire and love that all might be saved. But then we see God devotes himself to his bride, a unique covenanted love. And his prayer is for his bride. Hear it again. He repeats it. I am praying for them whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. They are already the fathers and they'll soon be purchased by the son. This is whom Jesus prays for. And what is the answer to his own prayer? It's verse 10. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. How did this prayer begin? Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. How? How will the son glorify the father and the father glorify the son? Somehow, some way, in the wisdom of grace of God, he chose us. That the way God would display the magnitude of his love, the way God would unveil the glory of his grace, that is how God is glorified. I am glorified in them. We are beautifully possessed by grace and we are purposely possessed for praise. We are owned by God in all the endearing, intimate, eternal love that has been enjoyed by the Father and the Son. And we are so given for the praise of God. I love when Mary finally sees the resurrected Jesus and she won't let him go. And Jesus says, don't cling to me. I haven't ascended yet. And then he says this, go to my brothers and say, I'm ascending to my father and your father. To my God and your God. 
He's already declaring through the victory of the tomb, it's finished. You have my Father. You are possessed by grace beautifully. And we are so purposed for praise. I am always moved. I've quoted this passage before, but I feel it's worth quoting here as we see this glory in how God chooses to be praised. Isaiah 62, you shall be no more termed forsaken and your land shall no longer be called desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, your land married. For the Lord delights in you. How? How does Isaiah picture in this moment the glory of God's delight in his people? Hear it. Isaiah 62 verse 5. As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride. So shall your God rejoice over you. The father's giving the son as the gift is our salvation. When God chose to forgive us, to reconcile us, to save us, he didn't create this impersonal mechanism where he flips a switch of unsaved to save or wrong to right. But God's plan was to give himself personally and to take us and give us back to himself. That's eternal life. What it means to receive the gospel and to be a Christian is that we have been made a gift for God. And God has gifted us himself for us. Is it any wonder that Isaiah chapter 64 says, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Or Paul saying, as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Who could have understood? Who could have guessed? Only revealed through the Spirit can we see the glory of God's love. And I pray that as we continue to bask in the warmth of this passage and let its light shine on our hearts in all of our confusion, struggles, and pains, we would feel the right tightening between the two rods of eternity past and eternity future. And find the strength where we are today. That if God would so plan my salvation. And God made it so certain that it is already accomplished. I can walk in faith and love. I can live that eternal life. He won for me. There might be a lot of ways we can mess up in life. But every one of those ways grace covers us. And the way forward on that tightrope is heavenward. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for these truths. Let them just wash over our hearts. Let them give us comfort and strength and take joy. Where we doubt, grow and cultivate faith. Where we are weary, plant your comfort. Where we are weak, bring forth the fruits of your strength. That glorious plan of eternity past, fulfill it today and point our eyes heavenward to know it is accomplished. Eternal life is ours. We know you. 
Make yourself known, your name manifested in this time together. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Father and the Holy Spirit.